0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods. To the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality. All in the service of conscious evolution, and increasingly in the service of finding a way forward to a future that we would be proud to bequeath to the generations that come after us. And with that in mind, my guest today is Tamsin Omond. As you'll hear, Tamsin's been a climate activist for nearly two decades. Since dropping banners against Heathrow Airport's third runway from the roof of the Houses of Parliament, Tamsin has consistently shifted public conversation on the climate and ecological emergency. They've organised all kinds of high-profile protests, co-founded a suffragette-inspired environmental campaign, set up a community interest company that mobilised the community surrounding London City Airport, led global corporate campaigns as head of global campaigns at Lush, and been a founding member of Extinction Rebellion. Last year, 2021, Tamsin stood for co-leadership of the Green Party of England and Wales, They're also the author of two books, Rush, The Making of a Climate Activist, and the most recent that came out late last year, Do Earth, Healing Strategies for Humankind. I thoroughly recommend both of them, and I'll have a bit of an offer at the end when we're done, so hang around and you'll get it. In the meantime, people of the podcast, please welcome Tamsin Omond. So, and Nowand, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast on this glorious late winter morning. Are you in? Are you in London? Or are you in Scotland just now? Because you you divide your time. I always thought that was a very wonderful thing to do.
1: Hey, Amanda, so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, right now, I'm sat in uh, East London, in the Olympic Borough uh, of Newham. I live in Forest Gate, so I'm just sat in my little <laughs> terraced house. Uh, I've just come back from a run. Um,
0: feeling pretty good enjoying the whole urban urban life of uh a an Olympic borough. I guess it became the Olympic borough in 2012. That's amazing. Did it make a big impact? This is nothing to do with accidental gods. I'm just curious.
1: <laughs> you know what? I think Newham actually is uh, to do with accidental gods. Newham is like it's the most diverse borough in London. It's also the poorest borough in London, the most polluted, and as ever, right. you know, environmental hazards get kind of dumped on communities of color and working class communities, and so it's like this strange uh, mix of. The reality of, you know, what Newham's always been, um, which is, yeah, a kind of working class culture, super, you know, so many different um, people here, uh, different cultures, and then this kind of intrusion of the desire a kind of place building that the Olympics brought. And the Olympics very right. definitely wants to regenerate the borough and make it more like Hackney. <laughs> um, and it's been really interesting to kind of live through that um, and, yeah, kind of to watch the different versions of, you know, how we're going to live in a city as we approach various limitations um kind of play out through this borough. I think it's one of like the most iconic sites of struggle in the UK, uh, which so is probably where I've put myself here.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, right at the heart of it. That's so interesting. I am desperately trying to find someone to speak to regenerative cities for Threatopia, actually. So maybe we need to come back to that in a bit. Because I'm remembering my brother's a geologist, and it took him to point out to me that the east of every city in Britain is. The one where the bad stuff happens because the prevailing winds are from the West. Exactly. And they blew all the pollution during all the industrial era went from the West, which stayed nice and bright and, and beautiful, to the East, which was then smogged. And presumably still is. Did it change a lot when we had the whole car reduction? Has that made a difference to air pollution?
1: I mean, I don't think so. I think like in this area, it's, it's the thing where, yeah, you can kind of have... I, yeah, I don't know if they're planning to to follow a policy of car reduction like at the moment there's this uh desire to build a new tunnel uh, underneath the Thames, so a new river crossing, and instead of building a river crossing that would uh, enable Walkers, cyclists, uh, public no. transport, they're building at the Silver the Town cars. Tunnel, which is going to be, you know, a new uh, tunnel for cars, which has been proven time and again to just increase traffic. Like it doesn't, yes. you know, their arguments are, oh, well, this is going to ease traffic <laughs> no, of for, from will. those other tunnels, from the, <laughs> the Dartmouth Tunnel. And, or, and it's like, no, no, no. If you put another tunnel in, more cars come. <laughs> That's how it works with roads.
0: Yeah, it's like you build bigger motorways more cars take the motorways this is this is the old definition of madness being the, doing the same thing time after time and expecting a different result exactly and you have to think somewhere along the line they don't really expect a different result they just expect people to believe what they say which yeah
1: well, absolutely don't you know i i dream of a time when there's a green mayor of london and you know this idea of regenerative cities which feels like it shouldn't be that far away like every single party is kind of hemorrhaging support in the capital apart from the greens um and i think you know it, at that point like uh, uh, just to have A leader in such a powerful position who is open to the ideas of regenerative city building uh, would be so exciting. And I think for Newham, I I actually did a project with with the New Economics Foundation around London City Airport. And London City Airport is this... um, you know it's it's a small airport that serves the very rich uh it's 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 literally for the city like the, the most flights going out of it are going to geneva they're going to you know those those <laughs> those places in europe where uh money is just being exchanged <laughs> um and uh and we did this uh we, yeah we did this project where we just imagined what it would do for the local community if you took red of you got rid of that airport and used that land which is you know beautiful docklands to build community to build a residential area to build the things that a community needs to flourish—to put a library in, to put you know, like whatever it might be—instead um, mm-hmm. of just pursuing this, yeah, like like what you know, this this version of growth or this model of growth that is supporting uh, the one percent at the cost to everybody who lives around that airport who's breathing the air from those planes. Yeah.
0: Not to mention the carbon load that's going from it anyway. And when you did that project, we'll we'll come back in a little while to how you (laughs) happened to be with the New Economics Foundation and why you're interested in the green. (laughs) So it's good. It's great. Let's just keep going because did the project create the kind of tangible data that if we had someone whose job didn't depend on them ignoring you was able to listen, would they have had actionable, you know, plot points of what to do besides shut the airport. Did you create that kind of data for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if there were an enlightened leadership in City Hall, then we would have seen them take this and be like, oh my gosh, we can do something that's good for the community, good for business, the sort of business that nourishes community, Mm. good for London, um, and also shut down an airport that is increasingly completely, you know, it it shouldn't be there. Like, it's, it's in the wrong place anyway, because there shouldn't be an airport right in the heart of one of the biggest cities in the world. Um, That's completely insane. Um, And when we did that, like the Green Party hadn't come out for or against the airport at that point. They were against the expansion of it, but they hadn't come out strongly saying we need to get rid of the airport. And once we did that project and we showed them, you know, these are the policy points that you could create, that's the pathway that you would take not just to, you know, removing the airport, but what you'd set up in its place that would deliver all of these, you know, good outcomes. Uh, The Green Party did take it up as, as their Uh, policy on their policy agenda and were campaigning for it during the mayoral elections. And because it's such an ambitious project, you know, it really just does the thing of saying this bad thing, (laughs) you know, we must get rid of it, but actually what can we do in its place? Uh, Which I think is what, you know, so many of us are struggling to understand um, is okay, right. We understand we don't want this version of capitalism. We understand that we don't want to keep extracting from the planet. Um, And yet this is the reality that we've all been molded by. Um, And so what on earth do we do to step away from it? And I think, yeah, like more and more, we like, thank God for the New Economics (laughs) Foundation doing their like number crunching, the things that, you know, us creatives might be less good at kind of wrapping our heads around. We can do the imagination um, and then them coming in and actually making it like a very robust report that you can wave at various policy makers is incredibly helpful.
0: Yeah, it is if they actually took any notice, which clearly they don't, but they do They do on occasion. So let's take a step back because you just said us creators, but you were in New Economic Foundation doing the number crunching. So let's situate people in Tamsin and how you get to be the person who's talking with authority about what the Green Party does, who's been in in the heart of the New Economics Foundation, and yet has the vision to see beyond the existing paradigm, which is kind of a unique combination. So so walk us through uh, the edited highlights of how you got to be also the person who wrote Do Earth and all of the other things that you've done.
1: Yeah, where to begin? Like in some, Yeah, there are so many different places to start from. And I guess there's, you know, as storytellers, like each different version of where we begin will tell a different story about, you know, who I am and how I got to doing this. And I think right now... I have less of a clear sense of like a really brilliant story to tell about myself than I've ever had because in some ways I am looking at the current situation uh, where our movements have brought us where um you know where 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 we're standing after the pandemic or like at towards the end of the pandemic or whatever it meant or in the midst of multiple pandemics and I think so many of us are kind of figuring out who am I what how do I make sense of myself in a world where so much is unstable and where so many of the assumptions on which I built my identity are shaken or shaking Mm -hmm. and I also feel that um and I think you know I used to have a really great story about like Tamsin the activist and it would begin at the climate camp outside Heathrow airport in 2008 or 2007 um, it was actually and it would kind of have a wonderful narrative art to it and I'd be standing on the top of the Houses of Parliament dropping banners against the third runway at Heathrow and then I'd move into Climate Rush which was organising women uh, as climate suffragettes and we were taking action to push the COP which is is a big meeting that happens every year uh, to an international meeting to kind of sort out climate change obviously hasn't worked yet <laughs> all of the governments of the world go along and the so do the fossil fuel industries and you know i, so I was going to talk about that and, and how we were climate suffragettes and doing all of this like really cool actions um, and reclaiming that radical rebellious uh kind of feminist principles and and then you know and then <laughs> then go into i don't know talking about anti-fracking and the activism there and and then maybe i'd finish with with this like recent standing for the green party as as a co-leader of the green party and and trying to align oh actually no because i couldn't miss out extinction rebellion (laughs) that would be sorry don't skip over extinction rebellion like one of the most successful movements uh, that i've been a part of um and and you know my part in kind of establishing that that movement um but i yeah in some ways i'm like okay that's great activism is really really important but i really want to know what the program for change is um like i i spent my whole life trying to raise the alarm around climate um, and trying lots of clever different ways of doing it focusing on specific issues whether it was fracking uh or airport expansion or whatever it might be uh using different methods whether it was you know i worked in business as as the um uh uh, what they call it like the head of campaigns for Lush, I worked as a funder, kind of fund, giving funds to different parts of the movement. So especially around the anti-fracking movement, you know, delivering like hundreds of thousands of pounds in small donations, 10,000 pound pots to <laughs> different uh, anti-fracking um, sites. And now I'm like, okay, so we've kind of said what we don't want and and I really want to understand what the thing is that we do want and I want to understand it you know I'm, I'm again it's like this ambitious thing I want the ambitious <laughs> model of it like I want to believe that there is something that can come and robustly stand up to the current system, and I know that's kind of not how change happens, in some ways. I don't I know. I see you. That. Yes, tell me. <laughs> Reassure me, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Because because you've done a brilliant edited bio. I, I would still like to look back at NEF at some point, but and the Green Party in a bit more detail and in different countries. But definitely. So, from my perspective, as the other end of an age scale, possibly, but I look at. Every version of change that our culture has created, and I have this put into a lot of perspective by David Graeber and David Wengrow's book. You know, it's it's very rarely do I read a book that changes stuff. Most books create a little incremental shift in, or a little expansion of awareness, or they fill in a data point that helps join all the dots together. This this opened a whole new door to a realization of how short a time frame we tend to look within, and how narrow a cultural environment we take to be the way things are. Because our culture has been the one that has managed to destroy a lot of the other cultures, but it doesn't mean that they were bad cultures or that they didn't function in a way that was actually really good. And that ours happens to be the utterly dysfunctional you know, child in the family who then manages to create total chaos. But even looking back within our own system, the people who managed to affect change did so by creating a vision of what that change would look like, as much as they did by getting in the way, by by throwing spanners in the various works of cogs that were supposed to flow smoothly. And so what I've seen with extinction rebellion particularly is that it's managed to throw the spanners in the works in a way that has got people Listening much, much more. And then the next stage is to offer the vision because the general mass of people, when I speak to people who aren't activists, just go down the local shop and there was a day last autumn, must have been near COP, where even the Daily Mail had a front cover talking about climate change. You thought, my God, you know, the world, the, the, yeah, hell is frozen over. What is happening? And I spoke to the lovely ladies in the shop and said, you know, who all read the mail, said, oh, look, climate change. And they, to a woman, actually did the physical move that took them. I'm not going to move away from the microphone, but they turned away, put out their hands and said, we don't want to think about it. So, They don't want to think about it because the entire narrative, the whole time I've been growing up, and therefore the whole time you've been growing up, has been, our world is going to get much, 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 much worse. Our standard of living is going, frankly, to be worse than you could ever possibly imagine. And we're going to hate it. And that's the only possible option. And surprisingly enough, nobody runs for that. They would rather not think about it until it actually arrives. And even then, they'd probably rather assume that it's only going to be temporary. This is one of the things that I think COVID has really taught us, because you don't need to know much virology to know that this is now with us. It's not going away. Coronaviruses are what coronaviruses are, and it doesn't matter where we think it came from, and it doesn't matter really what we think its broader purpose is if you're part of that group. It's just here. And yet our entire instinct has been to get it over with as fast as possible and get back to business as usual which is not going to happen. This is business as usual. And so even as our culture and climate and civilization slides down into destitution, we're going to keep harking back to the better point that we think we can get to. I was very struck. I read a critique of Vote Leave and their decision. They were working with the focus groups and they were working particularly with focus groups of people who didn't normally vote to find out what motivated them. And they found out that almost universally, these were older people, and they had a vision of a time in their past when they had more of a sense of control. And that was when the slogan changed from gain control to bring back control. And so we need to give people a sense of agency, I think, and a sense of a future that feels like they would want to get to it. And you and I, I believe, are still exist in a reality where that is possible. And if it isn't possible, it won't be because we didn't try. I think that's my default is that it may be too late, but I am going to give every fiber of my being to creating visions of a future that even the ladies in the village shop will go, oh, okay, that's all right we could do that. And it would be good and fun. And it's a world that is better. Because the other thing that's happening in the village shop is I go and have, this is the only place I have conversations now, with with people who are not part of my my kind of bubble, is I say to people who 10 years ago, if I'd said, look, guys, we just need a revolution, and it has to be peaceful, but we just need to get rid of the current lot, they are useless, and find a whole new way of doing things. And I haven't met anyone in the last three months who hasn't gone, yep, you're right. Mm. And that's new. So now I'll stop talking. Over to you, because I genuinely think okay, one last thing, which is the whole we only need three and a half percent. And I see where those numbers come from, but at no previous point has any of that been calling for complete systemic change. It's been calling for an increase in the franchise. You know, we would like black people to be able to not be slaves and to be allowed to vote. We'd like women to actually be given a vote in the way that their futures happen, not changing. The trajectory of capitalism. We're just expanding the pool of people who can vaguely make decisions. And this is different. And I think we need a lot more than three and a half percent. I think we need tipping points, which is probably more like 30 or 40 Mm percent. So, Over to Tamsin. How are we going to make this happen?
1: Go. Yeah, I love this. I love thinking about um, how this moment is distinctive from other moments that have required great uprisings of people to push forward progressive change. And just this idea that, you know, we're standing on the cusp of something that actually could bring together that 30 or 40 percent of people that you're talking about into a conversation that would look like nothing that had ever happened before, because we're not just asking for franchisement. As you say, we're not asking to extend the rights of a, a, you know, quite broken system (laughs) to include more people and only include them, you know, uh, yes, within, within the kind of rules of the game that already exists. Like, we're actually by necessity, having to rethink the rules of the game. And, yeah, as you say, like, recognising that those rules were only ever going to serve a model um, of uh, a society that, that, you know, that extracts from from everything really <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> that extracts from the yeah. planet, that extracts from labor, that extracts from the people, uh, marginalized people who are more available to extract from. And so, yes, it's like that, you know, that's the kind of, that's that's the silver lining in this, or, you know, the, the kind of whisper of another world or like many other worlds that, that might be sitting on the horizon somewhere and that we can kind of walk towards is that we are in a once in a species moment you know it's not like a once in a generation or once in a lifetime whatever it's like okay we've we've got one planet and we've taken it to this point where are we going to go next because there's no way we can carry on going the way that we've gone and I guess there's something quite um you know I don't know whether it's hopeful or just like it's a fact that we can't carry on going the way that we've gone and it means that we are going to do something different and I guess in terms of agency it's like we are going to want to have some control over the way that we go next, the path that we take next, because if we don't, then we're leaving it up to, who knows like the people that have always had power some unelected billionaires who are going to you know just just direct it in whatever way suits them so I'm kind of intrigued about explaining that to those people in your village shop and to the kind of increasing awareness from all demographics all people that the systems in place aren't serving us and you know even like the smallest um, end of that stick is like the thinnest end of that wedge is party gate you know there's these these things (laughs) will keep happening and they'll keep happening with more frequency and we'll kind of you know it will be We'll have more and more righteous indignation which is such a powerful energy but it's also an energy that can go in you know it can really go off piece into yes. anger frustration despair and what we need to do as organizers is is gather that righteous indignation and move it forward uh, you know figure out what the progressive pathways are for that to actually fuel systemic change and and in some ways that's like let's create spaces where we can have these conversations and let's enable people to have um, you know the language uh, to have uh, you know that that whole discussion in Extinction Rebellion around um, the Third Demand, uh, which was about citizens' assemblies, it's just such an important one, because it's like, where where are we going to figure this out if we don't figure it out together? How can we start having those conversations if the structures aren't in place around us for us to gather together and talk, and not just talk on, you know, what we're, (laughs) like, our opinions, but actually have a sense of what the facts are, be educated, be humble to the fact that we don't know everything, and some people know more than us, and then figure out what to do with that knowledge and you know there there are examples all around the world of, of citizens assemblies pulling together and setting forth a very progressive agenda for change because actually when you trust normal people or ordinary people they just want the common sense thing that that that, that yeah. gives health and 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 enriches them and their communities. I'll just say on this, like it's it's yeah, I feel quite um encouraged to speak into you, I guess. There's this quote by Rebecca Solner, which I'm gonna not tr- murder um, but it's uh, it, so i'll just paraphrase it but it's kind of about you know the idea that like w- what we were saying at the beginning around stories and around you know grand narratives and like all of these needs for a grand narrative for for things to kind of make sense in that way that actually david graeber i guess in, in his book which i haven't read that latest book that you were talking about would probably pull the plug on that you know that grand narratives kind of serve the particular system that we're in it's like oh well this is this makes sense from this understanding of the world But a different understanding of the world or a a different way of doing things would have very different stories about who the heroes were, where the, you know, where the climax was. Um, And I guess, yeah, this Rebecca Solnit quote goes something like, you know, the, the... we have this idea that we're going towards a destination that is going to be the end of the world or that it's going to be this glorious utopia and it's not like that you know it's a tangled pathway and every single step we take is complicated and there are however many billion people doing their complicated steps but that what we can do is that we can show up and we can just try and take the best steps that we can take and and acknowledge that that where that's going to lead is just somewhere else <laughs> it's not the perfect situation or the like absolute cataclysmic destruction. Um, and and within that, we can be, you know, I guess this is me saying this, we will find moments of, of extraordinary humanity um, when we're really blessed by the people who are acting alongside us from this extraordinary context and really showing those qualities that kind of redeem humanity, you know, the courage, the humility, the love um, that makes being human, you know, not so bad when um, (laughs) it makes
0: us proud, in fact, uh, Mm. to, to be human. Yes. And it's that sense of pride, I think, in being human and being part of a collective that's working to something that feels enriching. And I was talking to Natalie Nahai on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we came across the idea of psychological safety. And I think that if we could create a future which had that sense of psychological safety and enrichment and co-creation, we don't it's we don't have to create a utopia. I think it's quite important that we understand that we're not, but we do have to create a vision of a world that is motivated by things. Not to say capitalism is broken. I, I do a lot of animal training, dog and horse training and positive reinforcement. And one of the key things, you sit down with someone and you go, okay, w- you know, why are you here? What are we doing? And you get this long list of, I don't want my dog to jump up on strangers as soon as I open the door. You go, okay, that's the list of nots. In order to train your dog, we have to decide what we want it to do and go for that. You know, so I would like it to lie quietly on its bed, being really happy and feeling relaxed whenever somebody comes to the door because then it's not jumping on them. It's cool. The It's very hard to train a knot. You can't reinforce it for not jumping on somebody because it doesn't know what you're doing. And I think it's the same with whole cultures. We can't just keep telling people capitalism is broken and it's a disaster and we're all in it. And yes, it's horrible. We all think it's horrible. I th- imagine, even the people at the top think it's horrible. They just haven't got. Uh, COP really showed us. There wasn't a single person standing on any platform that I heard at COP who had a vision. Of anything other than, well, we just need to burn less fossil fuels. and And that's going to be hard. but we need to do it. and And we'll all make a lot of money doing the other thing, whatever the other thing is. and it's it's crap. Sorry. that probably just didn't lose us anything, so that's okay. Um we need to have the visions, and they need to be things that your heart goes, yes, that mm. that sense of i I will feel good waking up in the morning reaching for this and it will be hard but hard is fine I think people don't mind hard it, lots of people do very hard things as a sport I used to climb rocks we're talking about it the weekend you get halfway up and you think oh my goodness why on earth, why did I not just pick ballet or I don't know throwing darts or why am I doing this this is insane and you get to the top and you make that last hold which is usually the really difficult one and you get over the top and you go yes I did it and it was amazing and i feel so good and and so hard is fine yeah. when you can see even a little bit of the climb yeah. and complexity so what i'm wondering is with your you've been deep in xr you've also worked for the new economics foundation which is all about my looking at the outside from it finding ways of tweaking the current system whereas xr is much more about okay so you know, the current system not working let's envision a new system If you and I were to be part of a little mini citizens' assembly, just us, Mm. and bounce ideas, what would be your kind of envelope for a step towards that regenerative, flourishing, beautiful system that our hearts know is possible?
1: Mm. Oh, (laughs) Amanda. (laughs) just such a gorgeous way of framing this question yes I like to imagine uh, I think I will take this from our conversation of kind of imagining chats with friends as many citizens assemblies <laughs> it's really it's a good one um and yeah I I I do talk about this at length I mean it's actually not a very lengthy book so <laughs> it probably isn't that at length in my book of kind of you know what are the steps towards uh, building community really and how can we show up to the work of community without bringing you know the worst of ourselves (laughs) in some ways Mm. uh which i think is you know that is that's a really big job um especially because we've all been conditioned by you know this super uh individualism and uh you know wanting and needing so much affirmation all of the time um and then feeling impoverished when we have to give it to other people uh, and we don't get it back you know so so much of of how uh, for me at least I've been conditioned is is to see everything as a transaction like it's all Mm -hmm. transactional which is kind of the opposite (laughs) of the kind of service-led communities that would be uh, you know a big desire to begin to kind of form the structures of or the structures that would allow those to exist if if we were doing recommendations from our citizens assembly I guess yeah I'll just tell you about a little bit of kind of I think it bridges lots of different um, conversations about who I am and and how I've arrived at different things is talking as uh, you know we did at the beginning about London City Airport and and how I've related to that um, because I came at it very much uh, as wanting to stop london city airport from expanding that was the you know the vision was a was a no <laughs> um so i guess that was me wanting the you know dog to not chase the the postman or whatever i was like right we've got to stop london city airport from expanding and to do that we need to organize protests and me uh, I, I lived on the other side of london at that time i lived in um, kilburn so like every weekend i'd go to the community around london city airport and i would knock on doors and i'd try and get people to come out and protest and i tried to get the whole of the green movement interested in protesting london city airport and you know it was really like a let's protest this airport and and what i found whilst doing that was that the airport was not very high up on the uh, agenda of the people who lived around the airport. There weren't many other things that were troubling them uh, before you even pointed towards the airport. Uh, Things like unemployment, drugs, crime, you know, uh, uh, the fact that the airport in some ways was a symptom of the fact that there wasn't a strong community there to resist the growth of that airport <laughs> um, and the fact that there wasn't a strong community there was because people were really poor and they had loads of other things to worry about uh getting food you know there were many single parent families getting food on the table uh having a diet uh that wasn't you know based around like the 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 kind of the food desert that, that was their local neighborhood um and that was such a useful wake up call moment for me as a kind of thrusting young uh white environmentalist being like i know what we need to do we need to go to communities and get them to oppose the things that i think they shouldn't like um and instead uh i I, I got involved in a kind of community project um, in in the streets around London City Airport. And that's, you know, eventually why I moved to Newham was because of what we were building there, which was really a different vision. It was about holding space for conversations about what we wanted there rather than what we didn't want there. Um, and it was absolutely exquisite really the experience of being part of that community it's one of the things that nourishes my soul still just the memory of it makes me beam (laughs) like on a cellular (laughs) cellular level um, because it was really great and it was fun and I was getting to know people and and feeling like I was part of something in a way that I had never really felt before and feeling so deeply proud of the work that we were doing and you know these strange things would happen from it things that we couldn't have predicted you know if you don't want something you can kind of predict the outcome of your campaign if it's successful is that you won't get that thing <laughs> um but for us uh we were we, every week we'd hold space in a um, in a in a community center where and this community center you know they were just like you've got to come here we've seen you out on the streets we've seen you like organizing we've seen you knocking on doors like we haven't seen anything like this forever like please come and take space in our community center so we'd hold these meetings on a weekly basis and 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 all of the mums from the neighbourhood would come and they'd bring their kids and and there was just a limitation to what could be achieved when you had loads of kids in the room because it was chaotic and brilliant but also chaotic and so this young woman who um who who just graduated who just finished school and wanted to be a musician said you know what and, and was from the area as well I was like okay you know what I'll do is I'll take the kids off to a different room in the community center and we'll start a choir and so she started this choir with the kids and and they were just like finding their voice and being like held and supported Outside of the school environment, in a way that like actually wasn't very common. You know, it might be quite common for white middle class people to go to choir practice once a week, but it wasn't common for 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 the people in this community. Um, And then, whilst she was doing that in that room, we could get really organised and figure out, you know, what we wanted to do as a community. And it was yeah, like we we made a community garden. We started having regular meals um, with different members of the community bringing their like cultures cuisine and us all cooking together like it was so powerful (laughs) and and great and in some ways it's like well where does that go like how does that become Mm -hmm. part of a, a bigger picture like is that how we do it with like lots of small jigsaw pieces of communities that are kind of working together and then have in some sort of an alignment towards a bigger goal of of what 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 world they want to be inhabiting, um, so that it's less needing to kind of force its way into creation. And in fact, it's actually cherished and nourished. And it's like, yes.
0: Okay. So that was, if I've got the time right, about 15 years ago. Something like that. And you now live there. And so I'm really interested to see, hear from you. How has that grown? How has it flourished? Because those kids will now be adults of their own, probably have their own kids, some of them. Is there still a choir? Are they, you know, did the young woman who started it, is she out there being a musician in the world? Has that become a kind of a roadmap that other communities could follow if it were more out there in the world?
1: I think it's, yeah, how did we manage it? Like, it was all done on a bit of a wing and a prayer. Um, And what community needs actually is investment. (laughs) Um, and it can't just be done on the kind of good energy and good vibes, especially not in communities where, like, there aren't lots of white middle class people who could kind of take a bit of time um, mm. out to go and be part of their communities. So I think there are strong legacies from what we did there, not least. So this 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 choir master uh, Amina. She's just a huge uh, whirlwind in the activist scene in London. She um, she was part of the founding group of BLM London, uh, Black Lives Matter in London. She then started the London Renters Union which again is like has a whole huge journey of its own and and is about supporting um yeah supporting renters and 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 not letting landlords kind of chuck them out at a moment's notice and so she's you know I don't know that she was planning to be an activist when she left school but definitely through that kind of interaction with us and and realizing what she could do the power that she could do to transform her neighborhood has has set her on a path where she's just doing that everywhere (laughs) in really impressive ways um and you know you should speak to her like she's Mm -hmm. she's absolutely phenomenal um and and so like that exists I I I wonder what the legacy is for, for the kids who were in the choir like how they look back on that and remember it but in some ways it is this thing of like that community and that neighborhood was swamped in some ways by the systemic injustices that we live in and there are deep sorrows as well from from the work that I did there about five years after that, com- you know, that that community project, it kind of, I, I guess it, it burnt out in some ways. Um, it wasn't supported by the council. We couldn't get funding for it because of it being a little bit political in terms of uh, not wanting the airport. You know, the work that it did created a culture now where actually, mm-hmm. like, the Labour Party in Newham is against the airport being there. So, you know, it created the... The it, it, you know at the emergence of an anti London City Airport feeling um, in in Newham, uh, which is great, but for that particular community, it's like they need support um, in a way that that they haven't been given because of systemic injustice and there was this boy you know so for the amina story which i guess is you know again just thinking about storytelling and like you know the heroes of the story like for sure amina is the hero of that particular story but then like the tragic victim um is there was a boy called karim who was like 13 when we were doing it and he you know he was on the megaphone like and i remember that he turned to me once and he was like because we would just go down around the streets being like come out of your houses, come out of your houses um, before our meetings, before our community meetings. And he turned to me and he was like, you, you, could, you couldn't knock on someone's door. Like, the door was a barrier. Like, you can't go to people's doors. And now we can. Like, now the doors are open. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Somebody needs to, like, film you saying that and and get loads of funding for projects like this all around the country. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And in fact, like, he, yeah, he was, he was murdered. Um, and, it, like, you know, why that is, who knows. But he was, yeah, he was a victim of a stabbing like five years after that. So when he was a young young adult. And it's just I guess that you know, that's the kind of the hard end of the truth of of, of where we are systemically is that mm. like that his story shouldn't have ended like that. From what I know, knew of him for you know, like yeah. eighteen months to two years, working alongside him every weekend and seeing this like bright light, just wanting to engage with the world, wanting to know where he'd fit in, um, and and that was where that story, his story, ended up. There, are, you know, it's not without its challenges. The the work that we're set to do,
0: it's not, is it? That's yeah. incredibly sad. Yeah. There are so many places we could go with this. And partly I had written down heroes of the story because one of the conversations I want to have in the middle of Throughtopia with Sharon Blackie, who's written a lot about the heroic journey and the whole Joseph Campbell model, and looking at the post-heroic journey and whether it's time to have a post-heroic journey. And I've been talking to, to young American activists who go, we're all the heroes. Everybody needs to be a hero. Everything has to be horizontal. No more heroes. And yet I think listening to you and listening to that there are some parts of us as human beings that are so hardwired, or at least in our firmware, not in our hardware, and being the hero of a story. And we can all be the heroes of our own stories. But I think that that heroic narrative that pushes us to take that step a bit further, because we, at a very deep level, crave that sense of acknowledgement. I think this is one of the reasons why solitary confinement is one of the worst things we can do to people, is we lose that sense of feedback from other people. So that's a direction I'm thinking out loud, because one of the other things that's coming up a lot is this white middle class having the time to do stuff, and other everybody else not. And our system is set for that. And it's hard to imagine the people currently in power listening to an alternative. And yet, on the rare occasions where I sit down and talk to our local Tory MP, very white, very upper middle class, would be devastated if we were to suggest to him that he didn't care about people other than himself. And I wonder if we could craft a narrative again in our little citizens assembly of two, of a place where he doesn't feel that in the midst of his transactional world where everything is zero sum. Maybe we have to dismantle that for him first, because I think this is one of the fallacies of our culture that surviving or, or cultures that thrive don't have that zero-sum transactional sense. They have a sense where I can still be an individual. I can do things that are different from the rest of the culture. I can be blue soldier woman. And you, know, you may think women don't fight, but I'm going to go out and fight because that's what I want to do. In battles where you know, you're counting coup on someone, you're not actually killing them. But let's leave that to a separate, separate narrative. So there's a sense where David Wenger describes cultures where nobody tells anyone what to do, and yet the entire culture flourishes because there is a sense that the heroes are the people who help the flourishing, in a way. There's an extraordinary woman that I've listened to on a podcast this is an aside, we'll come back from this. She She's very white, was very middle class, was part of a UN delegation working in South Africa doing NGO stuff at a very high level. They invited some Maasai warriors to come and talk to them and they all turned up, looking amazing, as you would expect, and gave their talk, went away again. And then she was invited back to the tribe for a ceremony. And partway through that ceremony she realized it was a marriage ceremony and she was the bride because one of the young Maasai men had gone back to his tribe and said, I've just met the woman that I dreamt about when I was 11 that I was going to marry. And there was great consternation because that's not what you do. You marry someone else from the tribe. But the elders and the shamans got together and they decided it was his dream. And so he'd better invite her And marry her. And so halfway through the ceremony, instead of saying, Hey guys, I'm I'm sorry, but I think you might have got the wrong person, she thought, Well, it would have been really impolite to say no. And so now she's married to a Maasai warrior. And because the whole area depends on tourism, when COVID hit, she went to her husband and said, We have no income now. How are we going to put the kids through school? And he said, Well, we will do what we always did. We didn't have money before. We don't have money now. No big deal. He was part of that ceremony where they got married. He was also elevated to be a sub-chief. I don't understand the full hierarchy, but the hierarchy is not, I get to give you orders. It's, I went with the group of young people my age out into the bush for six years, and when we came back, they said I was one of the people who was good at taking responsibility. And who could hold everything together when things were going very badly wrong. And we're all still alive, we who came back. You know, The ones who didn't come back are the ones who aren't still alive. And we're still alive because this person is one of the people who helped that happen. And we have hierarchies where the worst possible people, the psychopaths, get to the top. And we need to change that. And one of the ways of changing that has to be Changing the system. But in the meantime, and the progress towards that, my feeling is that if we could craft a story where the people currently holding the reins of power were to understand the devastation of what they were doing in a way that really touched them, like Karim's story or even Amina's story, they would want to help. Because currently they have a story where all people are bad and are out for themselves. It's all zero-sum, everyone's trying to con us, and, and we have to prevent them from doing that. And the entire social care service system is set up to stop people getting money, which is insane. So, let's craft something. You've been in NEF, because in the end, it comes down to resource. Yeah. And in our world, money is the core resource. And the reason the white middle-class people can do this stuff and the others can't is because the white middle-class people have more money mm. and therefore more resource and therefore more time and more agency. So how do we create agency?
1: I love this idea of um, celebrating the others, <laughs> like celebrating those yeah, who aren't the kind of dominant leaders. And I guess this is like if we're thinking a kind of about a post-heroic narrative um or building up the idea of who will be our heroes now um then yeah i mean it's it is amina and and it is karim and, and I'm, I'm so intrigued about the you know how how will we as like white middle-class people uh cope with the fact that we may not be the best heroes of the story right now and that we might need to make space for other heroes to emerge um and accept and invite celebrate their emergence like it really is time I think and I, I am so interested about this idea that you know like it's it's not like, it's new to me, and it's so not new to people who have kind of sat at the margins of things. Uh, you know, like this person that you were talking about, like, but h- how will we get by? It's like, we'll just do it how we did it before when we had nothing. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for, for us, that's such a crazy idea. Like, how do we get by post-capitalism? How do we get by without, um, you know... Like, my partner's just, just, uh, just quit her job because... Like whatever it is, it's not worth that, <laughs> you know, like whatever the benefits are of, of, the, of having the nine to five or the eight to six as it actually turns out to be and, you know, the stress of it and the pressure to show up and to always be like particularly on point, like it's just not worth it. And like how we get by, just we're going to have to figure that out because mm. that version wasn't working. So yeah, I'm, I'm you know, like, I, yeah, I, I, I love this idea of build, building up different versions of, of heroism and I think you know that that thing of like being influential and recognizing that your actions your heroic actions have influence and that that in that influence you're being acknowledged like your efforts and and your gift to society is being acknowledged and I think of this you know Tory MP who has so much influence um and who probably is like really seeking acknowledgement that he's just doing the right thing and that he's like making the choices that he can make to to build the society that he thinks will serve the most people like I I can't believe that anyone I mean you know for sure there are some real psychopaths at the top Um, (laughs) but like I think you know anybody that's kind of in a public servant is is probably trying to do the best they can to to be a hero to be the hero of their own story and I think yeah we need to like we just need to celebrate all of the stories that aren't that one (laughs) you know like celebrate Mm. all of the heroes that aren't the politician in charge, in control, laying down the law that all of us have to live by, um, and instead is something like much more like listening, much more emergent, uh, reacting to change in a way that, that seeks to shape it rather than control it or rather than assert some universal truth that shall not be <laughs> you know, uh, disputed.
0: Okay, this is sounding good. And it seems to me that the Green Party has. Is stepping towards that. And I'm really curious to know, now that the Green Party is in coalition in government in Scotland.
1: Let's all move to Scotland.
0: Well, quite. Yes. <laughs> or, or we could just import Scottish concepts down here because it, I'm yes. also watching. So Scotland, I think Scotland, Wales, Iceland, Finland, New Zealand, the five are all nations of around 5 million and they've joined in a well-being alliance yeah. and they're sharing best practice. And I think other than Wales, the other four are all led by women. Which you know, I know we shouldn't necessarily label things with gender, but that does seem quite significant (laughs) to me, really. Um, And Mark Drakeford is a particularly switched-on bloke. And the Welsh have written into their constitution, which the other four don't yet, the fact that they have to take into account the impact down seven generations of what they do. So they're not building new roads or new tunnels and pretending that that won't create more cars because they've got people in there going, no, 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 that's not going to work. Yes. So as we're seeing, politics being influenced. And I'm guessing it happens both ways. I would imagine that quite a lot of the Green Party people go in with extraordinary ideals and end up going, well, the reality is we can't do all of it. We have to pick our battles, which is the nature of current politics. Are you seeing anything in Scotland that's filtering down through kind of Green Party networks to give us a different model of doing politics? and of shaping policy that is creating more value more widely spread.
1: Yeah, I think this is like it's it's really about the ego of power, isn't it, that there are no other alternatives and I'm you know I guess that's kind of where we live in our current reality is that it's so hard to believe that there are other ways of doing things because this is the way it is. And and there's so much ego to that, yeah. because actually there are, you know, an infinite number of ways of doing things and, and those are being expressed in the cracks in this system all the time. I'm always surprised at the fact that, you know, just, you know, in the same country or in, in some ways, or just north of the border between England and Scotland, there is... A very different model a, a kind of experiment in some ways of many different ways of doing leadership like you know the, the co-leadership of 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 you know two women-led uh political parties um I, the Scots are led by a gay man and a woman but you know <laughs> like it's not it's not uh, the version of of male um heterosexual leadership that we're kind of or pa- patriarchal power that we're used to and daily <laughs> there's exciting news coming from Scotland <laughs> about about their different ways of doing things you know they're going to do free public transport so they just make the decision and they do it and that proves to us that it is possible for under 16s and over whatever so that, that, that that it is possible to do that right. um that you can just make these decisions they're going to give free s- sanitary you know sanitary products are going to be free it's just a decision you make that decision like uh, education has always been free <laughs> like universities yes. for scottish in scotland are free um and and you know these are people who like they literally exist within like whatever it is like the united kingdom like um so how can that be possible that a devolved country can be acting so differently to to us um and i guess like the the clear thing is that that North of the border, they're acting in a way uh, they're trying to make policies that make life better mm. for people. Mm. And that just feels totally radical, which is insane.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then we watch it in the States as well. You know, Biden is, for all his flaws, trying to make policies that make things better for people. And the fight back to make sure that doesn't happen, and to create the righteous indignation that you spoke about earlier, which is such a powerful thing, against it, as if this was somehow a bad thing. It's extraordinary how fluent the people who don't want this to happen are in creating particularly righteous indignation, which I remember from my neurophysiology days, a, a really good hit of righteous indignation is the equivalent of snorting quite a lot of cocaine. And it's addictive. Wow! It's and so and so people like feeling righteous indignation, and they'll come. But this is why the mail does so well. You know, it's a headline every day. It's designed to give you that little spike of, "Oh my God, that's awful," and I'm better than that. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, it sadly is. Until we manage a bit of conscious evolution, where we can kind of look at that in the happening and go, "Actually, no, I don't want to go there." We're we're kind of stuck with it. So it'd be nice to be able to create some righteous indignation that was on the hell yes front. Mm-hmm. So free public transport, free sanitary products. I'm going to tell you a funny story. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, it's the only bit of social media I still do, but floating past the other day was the bloke going, tampons shouldn't be free. If women can't control their bladders, that's their problem. <laughs> and the woman posted it going, okay, girls, who's going to be the one to tell him, eh? <laughs> so... You yeah, know, we got a degree of education to do out there, <laughs> in between falling about. Um, so, but still, okay, Scotland, free public transport, free sanitary products, free education, as you said, has always been free and and pretty good. I went to university in Scotland; it was a it was a good experience. Mm. What else? I'm thinking the things that I would want to see free are housing, because you have to give people shelter. I would. Really recreate the agricultural system so that so that staple food was all free. Uh, broadband, <laughs> partly because then I can play Warcraft. But you know, leaving that aside, broadband needs to be free because it's a, definitely a, a staple and power and water and sewage. You know, Britain is the only nation in the entire world that has ever privatized its water and sewage. And they keep dragging people in from you know, other places like the U.S. and going, hey, guys, we went private. And the U.S. are going, oh, God, yeah, we did, didn't you? And it's such a big mistake. Yeah. And nobody else has ever done it. But we have the little ideological, you know, this needs to happen. Private is good. And, and what they do then, apparently, I gather, is take out huge, huge loans in order to pay their CEOs. Massive bonuses because that's the most financially efficient thing to do. While, you know, spewing vast quantities of raw sewage into the rivers and oceans, because the stuff to treat it came from Europe and now we can't get it. So we're not going to try and do anything else. We're just going to pretend it doesn't matter. <sighs> this is the world we live in. Okay, so we're starting a new narrative. That's that's the stuff we don't want. What's the stuff we do want? We want clean waters. We want, I guess for the cleanup to be also free. yeah. So all of our water and and the cleanup from agriculture, because huge amounts of the pollution that's happening in the world seems to me comes from agriculture. And I've read the GOES paper. Anyone who hasn't, I'll put it in the show notes because you know, we think there's a slow dissolution and things just get worse. But if I've read the GOES paper correctly, it comes from the Rosen Institute. We're living in a very fragile system where the ocean is acting as that... Um, buffer, weak acid buffer, and I remember doing chemistry at school, and you drip the acid, and you drip the acid, and you drip the acid, and then between one drop and the next, it suddenly changes. Mm. And it's not just the CO2, it's it's microplastic pollution and general pollution. If the phytoplankton all die, which they will if the pH continues to go 25 years, and the pH hits 7.9, no more phytoplankton, 50% of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from the sea. At the point when the seas die, they all die. Everything dies pretty much overnight. Mm. Then I think things get really quite difficult very quickly. Mm. It's not a slow dissolution then. That's a very, very sudden 50% drop in the oxygen in the atmosphere. It's not going to be a fun way to live. That's like standing at the top of Everest. And so, you know, I'm sure Elon Musk and the others have got little supplies of oxygen cylinders, but the rest of us, not so good. So, Without wishing to frighten everybody, <laughs> I still think that's a really good reason to change things quite fast. Yes. Um, so in our radical revolution, we've got, so I've gone for free power, free water and sewerage and clean up and free staple food and free housing. What would you have?
1: Yay. I, you know what? The breadth of your imagination is putting mine to shame. So thank you for reminding me that I can ask for more than free sanitary products. Um, <laughs> And also for reminding you know, us all about these feedback loops and you know, the, the kind of sudden jolts in the climate system that we are approaching, um, that, that kind of are the reality, and that uh, give us the context in which we can demand the impossible because we're literally moving into you know, an impossible era. I loved, um, at the beginning of the COP, which was held in Glasgow last year, I was working with the Minga Indigena, which is a group of uh, indigenous leaders from Latin America. And they were heading to the COP and they were obviously like everybody wanting, you know, huge transformation they were wanting it to be the cop where britain recognized its uh formative role (laughs) in creating the structures of oppression that uh you know that, that that have created this climate crisis but have also you know pushed indigenous people off their lands um with colonialism and and that's what you know it was just so gorgeous (laughs) them coming with these huge expectations and also completely heartbreaking with the knowledge that you know our leaders were probably not going to meet with them and they were probably going to be outside the conference center maybe you know a great photograph for the guardian uh, in their ceremonial gear but not actually being listened to and then nicola sturgeon uh, you know rewarded us all and surprised us all by making the first meeting that she had at COP be with the Minga Indigena Um, and it just felt like a different way of doing leadership and I guess like I want all of those things that you said to be free (laughs) Um, and then I also want these ancient systems of wisdom that we Mm. are only just you know we as kind of well, me, I'll say, as like a white Western person, only just beginning to scratch the surface of recognizing, acknowledging and desiring to understand. Um, I want those systems of wisdom to be amplified and for us to humbly learn from the wisdom of, uh, you know, of peoples who we have historically oppressed and who actually seem to have a number of answers about how we can Uh, curate our our relationship with the world
0: yes a lot of them are spiritual aren't they their answers yes a lot of them are spiritual (laughs) and it seems to me that we do and we must change the nature of our politics and our economics but that the fundamental change that needs to happen is that sense of reconnecting with the all that is, with the web of life, with whatever it is that we call it, to the point where there feels like a genuine connection. I, you know, I I sometimes watch some of the students that come to the shamanic stuff and they're. it takes quite a while to get out of the headspace of thinking that you want it to happen, but I'm the one person that's not going to happen to, to understanding that this isn't a happening. It's just letting go enough to accept the invitation that is already there. And how do we help that happen at scale? When we've had 2,000 years of the spirituality that was there was so destructive and so violent and so misogynist and homophobic and all of those things, that spirituality itself has become a toxic cue. And we need to go, okay, that you know, yes, it wasn't great, but all around the world where that spirituality wasn't destroying people, there were people actually connected. And this connection is a real thing, and you don't have to put it all aside like we did in the Enlightenment in order simply to survive and not be burned at the stake, for instance, which you and I would have been, you know, long before now. So, from your experience of being with them and being in their company and seeing the connectedness that happens, have you ideas of how we can spread that at scale?
1: I would love to have a great answer for that. <laughs> like, I mean, I think we are spreading it at scale um, through our decisions to live publicly spiritual lives um, and to credit whatever, mm. like, you know, enlightenment <laughs> that we have on, um, you know, on the source of that enlightenment, which I think, you know, for me at least is, is fractured spiritual journey but one that I work hard to make less fraction mm. but yeah from the being around people whose culture is spiritual um or who have you know who who whose understanding of the world is spiritual <laughs> um it's it's just so joyful it's really relaxing in some ways it's like I was desperate that the cop would achieve all of the things that they wanted it to achieve they they just knew that it either would or it wouldn't but that also everything is going to be okay in some way um, right. and so yeah i don't like I, I think you're really right like the challenge of the past 2000 years and this kind of you know this huge fracture in our in what i think is like a, the biggest human need which is to have a sense of connection with something that makes sense and is bigger than us and it doesn't need to be a god or a deity or anything it could just be you know belonging to this great human family on this strange and mystical planet (laughs) Um, and I think there is a hunger for that and that hunger is being filled in various ways you know I look to like the 12-step recovery and like enormous growth of these kind of spiritual practices in 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 that community and how it's you know it's just so interesting to see that it is being answered but it's not being answered in a monolithic way anymore because we Mm. have all (laughs) had our issues with that except for the people who haven't yet um who haven't yet been excluded from the spirituality that's on offer there um yeah. but I th- like I, I yeah I you know I, I maybe we should have started talking about spirituality earlier in some ways it's like it's such a private or into maybe not private it's such an intimate thing it's it's exactly like you say it's like you kind of want to believe that it can happen for you but you don't believe that it can happen for you and then at some point you let go and it is just happening and you are just being in the world and it's all right and you know I think like we all need to prioritize building those practices that that allow us to relax into into our spirit in, into our
0: spirit. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect and beautiful and wonderful. Yes. And every for everybody that will be different. But that sense of the relaxing into spirit is the bit that then becomes a common language that you can share. That's brilliant. It almost feels like a really good place to end. And it might be a really good place to end. We might cut here, but I had one last question, which was really. Where now for Tamsin? Because you're such a blazing light of being and you have such a vision of a different world. Have you a sense of forward or are you just relaxing into the being and seeing where it takes you?
1: Where now for Tamsin? Um, yeah, I, th- I really like this is something I don't have a clear answer on in some ways. Like there are things that tug at me, they, they tug at my attention and I think. Yes, that's it. There is a Tamsin-shaped key to unlock this particular door, and if I unlock it, then hundreds of thousands of people will pour through it, and we'll, you know, we'll get to that next great moment um, of the pink boat in Oxford Circus, or whatever the next great moment is. And I'm also looking at those things with a little bit of, uh, you know, in some ways, I so want my existence to make sense in this time like I want to be useful I want mm. to I want to be a key <laughs> and sometimes I wonder about yeah where, whether my f- where whether my focus is is in the right place um because whilst I'm trying to uh transform the whole narrative I can often lose the immediacy of connection with my own community um because I just get so busy doing something big and public that it's like I don't really exist as, as you know, a, an embodied human yeah. being just trying to to figure out how we build community in a very specific time and place. And so I guess yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like a pull between two different versions at the moment. And you know, I'll probably just straddle them for a bit. And one of those versions is like being in London, being part. You know, Extinction Rebellion has this new strategy for 2022. It's really the you know if not now when if not who, etc. kind of strategy, and it's kind of going back to some of the basics as well. Uh, you know, like Extinction Rebellion in some ways like fractured so much because there were so many much interest in so many different places in being part of it, and now I think this this strategy kind of pulls it tight and and kicks hard at those. Um, you know, at where power is currently situated. So for sure, I'll be part of that up until um, April and potentially beyond. Um, But then there's another part of me which just says, go to the Highlands, (laughs) go to the Highlands. Mm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the Highlands in some ways, you know, is it a real place even, (laughs) but it is a real place. Um, And yeah, me and my partner have a kind of long-term desire to create and be part of intentional community um, and that feels very challenging to do in London because of you know some of what I was saying around uh, around the kinds of life that London rewards and the kinds of life that it doesn't reward um, mm. and so in some ways it feels like it might be a lot simpler to do that not in London um, mm. And then writing, I you know this writing this book last year was just a gift. It really was. And and I guess in some you know when I talk about spiritual practice as well, like I I found through I thought, what is it called the artist's way. Um, that's a really lovely way to just explore your own spirit. <laughs> I found. I recommend it to like everyone if they want a kind of twelve week program of discovering you know their artist who potentially they never let. Take control of their life before, um, and so I'm. Yeah, I'm interested to write as well. Like I think you can get close. I, I I do a lot of. You know, I, I actually find it quite hard to think unless I'm writing down. Unless I'm looking at what I'm. Mm. I'm. Yeah, so I think it's quite a good way for me to to you know just figure out like if we're going to have to build new worlds, then I might only get close to what I think if I start writing about them.
0: That sounds good. Yes. Okay. So whatever the artist's toy is, because I've never heard of it before, we'll oh, put lovely. links in the show yeah. notes um, so that people can access it. And that feels like a wonderful place to end. I look forward to whatever book arises out of this process. Tamsin Owen, thank you so much for coming on to Accidental Gods. Thank you. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Tamzin for the vibrant enthusiasm that they bring to everything that they do and the depth of thinking. It's this kind of emotional and spiritual literacy that I think is going to make all of the difference between where we are and where we need to be. That stepping away from the righteous anger and into a more reflective, reflexive way of being that allows us to not have to know exactly where we're going, but to sit and listen and see what the world needs of us first. While we're waiting to see what the world needs of us, I have four copies left of Do Earth, Healing Strategies for Humankind, by Tamsin Omond. I bought quite a lot of copies when it came out because I thought it was so interesting. It's one of those books that takes us forward gently, so that we can give it to people who are perhaps on the edge of understanding the nature of the problem and the solutions, because Tanzan really goes into the kinds of things that we need to do to bring ourselves to a new way of being. So, I have the four. I also have just recorded a podcast with someone called Raiki Cordon about seeds S W E S, which is a new kind of currency, and which seems to me to be a way forward in the transition between where we are and where we need to be. So I am in the process of setting up a Seeds account. By the time you hear this, I sincerely hope and believe that not only will I have a Seeds account, I will know how it works. And therefore, the first four people that contact me and offer whatever fraction of a Seed you want, I will send you a copy of the book. I will put a link to Seeds in the show notes. If you want to just Google it, go for Join Seeds, all one word, dot Earth. If I haven't, just email me. I'll send you a copy of the book anyway. But I'm sincerely hoping that I will be there. And this is a good thing. And we all want to be part of it, I think. So there we go. That's it for this week. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, enormous thanks to Caro C for wrestling with the sound production, as ever, and for the music at the head and foot. Huge thanks to Faith Tilleray for the website and all of the conversations that make this possible. Enormous thanks to Anne Thomas for her work with the transcripts. And a vast, vast thanks to you for listening. As ever, if you know of anybody else who really wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.